Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the name of God, Yahweh, as we're introduced to him in Exodus 3. Exodus. Exodus is an entire book about the liberation of Israel from their oppressors in Egypt. It's a very important book in the history of Israel. It's referenced throughout the Bible, the liberation of Israel from their Egyptian oppressors. By the time of Exodus 3, the oppression has been going on for off and on about 80 years. Moses is about 80 years old when he confronts Pharaoh, and by the time of his birth, that's when the persecution really started. The Israelites are multiplying, all, all the slavery tasks are being hurled on them one after another, and then their kids are being killed. And that's when Moses is born, when the Pharaohs are persecuting the Israelites for having too many kids. So Moses meets God in Exodus 3. This is the scene that we remember from all all our uh, Bible studies when we were a kid, our, our, our church church groups, church Sunday schools, this burning bush. This is in Horeb, which often people equate to Mount Sinai. So this might actually be Mount Sinai that he's on when he has this confrontation. But he sees a burning bush and you hear the paradigmatic call and response. God calls out to him and says, Moses, Moses, and he says, here I am. Throughout the Bible, various prophets are called in this manner where the name saying, and then they respond, here I am. Remember, we just talked about Abraham's call and response in Genesis 22 in relation to the sacrifice of Isaac. Same thing, same formula. When you see this, God's giving a tasking, usually. He says, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for this place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he's afraid to look at God. Notice how God introduces himself. This is not using the name Yahweh. This is using the word Elohim. And of course, you know that in our English text because it's just G-O-D. That's, that's the use of Elohim. When you see Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh's proper name. And by this time, we know that Israel has not known the name Yahweh. Yahweh's a new name that's being introduced actually in this Exodus 3. And we'll learn about that a little bit later. But notice how God introduces himself. It's a very personal introduction. It's not, I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. It's a personal relationships. It's, he's identifying with each one of these individual, individually. Each one of these individuals worshipped Yahweh. Each one of these individuals had a relationship with Yahweh. That's who he is that he's introducing him to Moses about. And he says this, Surely I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and heard the cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and also I've seen the oppression with the Egyptians oppress them. So notice this, the cry has come to me. This happens throughout the Bible as well. The Sodom and Gomorrah incidents is the cries have come to me. In Jonah, the Ninevites, the outcry has come to God. This is a common phrase for information flowing to God and then God's responding to some sort of outrage somewhere on earth. He says, come, I will send you. And say God's going to go do all these things, but he's sending Moses. Moses is his, his strong man. His, Moses is his voice. Moses will be doing the actions. Moses will be 
his mouthpiece, his, his, his representation on earth of his will. He says, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses is 80 at this point. Moses doesn't quite like this. And you, you kind of get that from Moses' character. If you read all of Exodus, he doesn't come off as a very strong person. He doesn't come off as someone who's eager to do God's will. I know when you look at all the different different like Bible miniseries or whatnot, you're going to have this happy-go-lucky Moses. And I'll splice in a clip here right now. If you're who you say you are, why would you return? God has sent me. I am here to set you free. God has sent you. Yes, God sent me to speak to you. Have you forgotten God? Even if you have, he has not forgotten you. In case you had forgotten, Pharaoh is the only God we have to fear. And you think he's just going to let us go? Who created the earth? Sea, sky, who created you? Pharaoh? All gods. You're demented. No! But yeah, see, see, they have this happy-go-lucky guy. Oh, I'm happy to do the will of God. That's not what's going on here. And Moses, he starts offering objections. He doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want to be involved with this. And first of all, he, he comes up with the objection, I don't, I don't know your name, God. I don't know what to call you. If you don't have a name, uh, then who, how are people going to know who you are? How are they going to know that your name has power? How do they know you have power? And this is how God responds. So Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, Yahweh, has sent me to you. <laughs> Does that sound like a non-answer to you? It kind of sounds like a non-answer to me. He's looking for this power name. And what does God re reply? He Basically, I'm me. I I'm the, who I want to be. I'm, I'm whatever I want to be. And this phrase has been variously taken by people throughout, throughout time as some sort of statement of negative theology, that God is self-actualized, self-existing, self and pure actuality. This is the phrase that they turn to. If you don't believe me, I got the book pulled up by Norman Geisler, and Norman Geisler is a self-described self Calvinist. He says he's a Calvinist, so I believe him. And he says this about Exodus 3.14. He says, most classical theists see God's aseity or aseity or pure self-existence as a key attribute. They cite the Bible in support of this position. This is true of the early church fathers as well as Augustine, Anselm, and Aquinas in defending God's self-existence. Aseity. Classical theists like Aquinas are fond of quoting Exodus 3.14, where God said to Moses, I am who I am. This they understand to refer to God as pure being or self-existence. Is that what's going on here? That God's introducing himself to Moses as pure existence? 
It, what, what's the context? It's, it's basically, I'm the God of uh, your fathers. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. Those are relationships. And remember, a being of pure actuality doesn't have relationships because any relationship causes potency, potentiality, and violates his pure actuality. Really, really. So these people, you know, Augustine, Aquinas, they're coming to the Bible and they're pulling this out and they're saying this means that God is pure simplicity and has no parts, is pure actuality, no potentiality to be anything else. But what's the context? The context is God's relationality. And let's see what he continues on with. And, he, and God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. <laughs> really? So this is pure actuality. This is pure simplicity. No, his actual name is being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a relational name. It's a name that he wants to be known by forever is, is the extent that he's relational to key patriarchs in Israel's history. That's what he wants to be known as forever. Not this pure essence, pure existence, pure actuality. Is that what he's saying here? Is there anything in the context to support that? Is there anything to take the, the Geisler and Augustine interpretation? Or is this this willfully, willfully and maliciously mistranslated just to be evidence towards these people's ideas of who God should be? But let's switch real quick over to the Greek text. We're switching to the LXX, the Septuagint version. And recall the Septuagint version that we have today may or may not be the Septuagint version that's that's referenced, which is translated by 60 individuals. And the original translation was probably just a key parts of the Torah, the key parts, maybe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, probably not the entire Old Testament, but we're not quite sure if what we have today is the original LXX, the original Septuagint. We just don't. But here's the version that we do have today, and let's see how they translate Yahweh, Asher Yahweh. They, they translate it Ego, Ami, Ha, On. Ego means I, Ami means I am, I, I am, ha, the, own, the one, the existence, something like that. I am the one. And that kind of resonates with what we understand of Platonic theology, that to God is this one. He's the singularity. He's the self-existence one. And this might be probably an artifact of the Hellenization that was occurring during this period. Remember, the Septuagint was written for the Ptolemies, the rulers of Egypt. Every time you hear someone's name in conjunction with Alexandria, Philo of Alexandria, Ben Shira was writing for Alexandria. Anytime you hear something equated with Alexandria, origin of Alexandria, it's got platonic overtones. There, there's platonic elements in that because it's a very platonic audience. That they, they like this type of stuff. They like this philosophy. And translating your Hebrew text into a more Greek-sounding text is probably a good political PR type of move, and it probably fits the environment you, you are in. So that's, that's probably why the LXX is translated like this, but it's probably not the original. It's probably not the original Hebrew. 
And we know this because we do have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the Dead Sea Scrolls use the antiquated Hebrew text for the name of God. If you're looking at the screen here, you got uh, the, the newer Hebrew at the bottom and you got the ancient Hebrew at the top. And although the, the Dead Sea Scrolls use that newer Hebrew within their text, they always retain the name of God in the more ancient format. This is the Yahweh. That, that's, that's what they care about. The, the name of God was so precious to them that they weren't going to change it into the modern lettering. They're just going to retain its old form even if it's the old characters. And you see this going on throughout the Dead Sea Scrolls, just this reverence shown to the name of God. So chances that I am the one is, is the original rather than the, the Yahweh, probably not too much. The Talmud actually backs this idea up. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this uh, little clip here. The only full interpretation of Exodus 3.14 in the Talmud is the Barakoth 9b2, where it is framed in the context of Israel's servitude in Egypt and Babylon, and is interpreted as an assurance by God that he will be with Israel in all its troubles. The only Talmudic citation of the absolute AA of 314b also features in this interpretation, whereas understood simply in terms of God's compassion towards Israel, apart from it being the only full interpretation of Exodus 3.14 in the Talmud, Berakoff 9b2 is also highly noteworthy because it is the interpretation subsequently espoused by Rashi and the most respected and influential of all Talmudic commentators and one of the most respected and influential figures in Judaism. The extract from Berakoff 9b2 reads as follows in the Sonico Talmud. I am that I am, the Holy One, blessed be he, said Moses. Go and say to Israel, I was with you in the servitude, and I shall be with you in the servitude of other kingdoms. And he said to him, Lord of the universe, sufficient is the evil in the time thereof. Thereupon the Holy One, blessed be, he said to him, go and tell them, I am has sent me unto you. So this Talmudic idea of what's happening in Exodus 3.14 is not this Greek idea. It's not the Greek one timeless pure essence, pure being. Instead, it's relational. God is saying, I am with you. I, I'm going to be working in a powerful way with Israel. And this is echoed by other rabbis. I got this uh, clip pulled up by Rabbi Sachs, and we'll listen to him pretty quickly talk about this. And then we'll turn to his book and see what he writes about in his book, which is a little bit more full. It's a little bit more detailed about this idea of whose God's name is in this text. Nice. Because when Moshe Rabbeinu asked God, who are you? He says, I won't bore you because I've written, it's at least in two of my books, the last two, uh, Great Partnership and the Future Tense, how every single non-Jewish translation of those three words is wrong. And only when they remembered to read the Mepharshim, the Jewish understanding, did they get it right. Does not mean I am that I am. It means I will be what I will be. Or to put it, paraphrase it, I will be what I choose to be. All right, we'll cut him off there. But imagine that saying I am who I am is I, I will be who whoever I want to be. It's more of a not not about pure actuality, not about metaphysics. It's about self being able to control yourself, being able to control your destiny, not being tied down to man's constructs. And it's a relational self. It's like, I will liberate you from Egypt. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. 
We see this, this is the Jewish theology. Contrast that to the Greek. And Rabbi Sachs is great because he writes a lot about this uh, Greek influence. And he sees Christianity basically as a Greek bastardization of Yahwehism, of Israel. And he talks about this. He says, The fifth and most profound differences lies in the way the two traditions, Christianity and Judaism, understood the key phrase in which God identifies himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who are you? asks Moses. God replies cryptically, Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh. This was translated into Greek as ego emi ho on, and to the Latin as ego cum or sum qui sum, meaning I am who I am or I am he who is. The early and medieval Christian theologians all understood the phrase to be speaking about ontology, the metaphysical nature of God's existence. It meant that he was being itself, timeless, immutable, and corporeal, and understood as a subsisting act of all existing. Augustine defines God as that which does not change and cannot change. Aquinas, continuing the same tradition, reads the Exodus formula saying that God is true being, that this being is that is eternal, immutable, simple, self-sufficient, and the cause and principle of every creature. <laughs> Rabbi Sachs just hits this all in the head. He understands what's going on. But this is the God of Aristotle and the philosophers. This is not the God of the Abraham and the prophets. Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh means none of these things. It means I will be what, where, and how I will be. The essential element of the phrase is in the dimension omitted by all early Christian translations, namely the future tense. God is defining himself as the Lord of history, who is about to intervene in an unprecedented way to liberate a group of slaves from the mightiest empire of the world and lead them on a journey towards liberty. Far from being timeless and immutable, this is skipping ahead a little bit, God in the Hebrew Bible is active, engaging, and in constant dialogue with his people, calling, urging, warning, challenging, and forgiving. When Malachi says in the name of God, I the Lord does not change, he's not speaking about his essence as pure being the unmoved mover, but about his moral commitments. Notice, Rabbi Sachs gets it. It's the God of the Bible versus the God of Platonism. The God of Platonism is one which can't change. It's pure essence. It's pure being. This is not Yahweh. This is not the God described in the Bible. I am who I am is a character statement about who God chooses to be, that God has self-volition, that God is not going to be chained down by our constructs, what we're trying to force on him. He's not going to be chained down in context by Moses trying to demand a name of God. Yahweh, as we will find out pretty quickly here, was not known before this. It seems that God came up with this name on the fly in response to this specific circumstance, Moses demanding a name. Moses didn't want to go. Moses wanted a name. Moses was throwing up roadblocks. God gave him a name. And this name is the one that God claims from here on out in the Bible. So back to the LXX or the Septuagint or what we think today is the Septuagint. We're not quite sure, but that's what we think it says. Uh, let's listen to this. It says there's, there's two other translations, Greek translations that we know of, which don't use this I am the one translation, Greek translation. There's actually Greek translations with I am who I am. The versions of Aquila and Theodotion have Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh, and the Yahweh of 1314b rendered into Greek as Isame, Hos, Isami, and Isami respectively, which in turn translates to I will be who I will be and I will be. 
There could have been several reasons why they chose to translate the words of Exodus 3.14 in this way, but among them would certainly have been a desire to produce a translation that would be more true to the Hebrew original than the Septuagint. For this reason, they would have wanted to restore the idiom per idiom form of Yahweh, Asher, Yahweh, and so they did. However, had the translator's only purpose been to restore the idiom per idiom form, then the most obvious revision of Ego, Ami, Ho, on would have been ego ami ho ego ami which would have at least preserved the only literal translation of yahweh that does not feature in the septuagint version of the verse instead they chose to replace the words ego ami with isami which is to replace the words i am with i will be and in keeping with the apparent intention of the hebrew text they translated all three occurrences of yahweh in this way so these two versions, these two ancient Greek versions, are using the translation of the verse that Rabbi Sachs points to, that the context points to. The context is God's personal relationship with individuals. It's not pure actuality, metaphysics. That's not the name of God. That's not what's going on here. That's, that's an imposition on the text by people who want to Platonize God and make him more appealing to a Platonic audience within the LXX and these later philosophers trying to square them with their Platonic ideas of who they want God to be. That's not Yahweh. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible defines himself in a relational way. And continually throughout the Bible, God is relational. God defines himself in light of Israel. God defines himself in light of humanity. God's relationship to humanity is the core part of the Bible. It's the core focus of the Bible is God's relationship to mankind. Remember, pure actuality, pure simplicity has no predicates. It has no parts. It has no relationships. It has nothing that could cause division, relationships, uh, degradation in the divine selfhood. So which translation sounds more accurate? The LXX, uh, the Augustine, the Anselm, the Aquinas, the Norman Geislers of the world, or the Jewish rabbis and the, and the Jewish, uh, you know, Yahweh, Esher, Yahweh. As we hear, I will be who I will be. What does the context suggest? So let's talk real quick about the development of the name Yahweh in the Bible. God's name was not always Yahweh. People before this time did not know God as Yahweh. Even though Genesis uses the word Yahweh throughout, we notice in Genesis 1 it uses Elohim. Then it switches over to Yahweh in Genesis 2 once you get the second creation account. There's this name switch and there's, there's swapping going on throughout the Genesis text. But that's an anachronism. It's a anachronistic. It's, it's the modern person using the name that they're familiar with, God, in older texts. And we learn about this in Exodus 6, 2 through 3, in which Yahweh appears to Moses and he says this, And God said to Moses, and this is a translation from this book. It's a Smith book. It's the early history of God, Yahweh, and other deities. You know, this is talking about God and, his, and the other deities that are found in the ancient Israelite context. He says this, And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, but my name Yahweh I did not make known to them. So El Shaddai, El Shaddai. And there's this, this focus in the Bible of equating the God El with the God Yahweh. And normal Christians, people who, who care about scholarly studies, 
equate those two. El is the same person as Yahweh. Critical scholarship, on the other hand, we got to be very clear about this. Critical scholarship thinks that El was a primary god at one point in Israel's history. Yahweh was a subservient god. And then they point to texts such as Psalms 82, an ascension psalm, where El is ruling over a pantheon of gods, and then Yahweh steps up. Yahweh takes control. Yahweh is replacing El as the divine god ruling the pantheon of gods. So they see that as an ascension text. We should be clear about that. And they see these this conflation of Yahweh and El in the Old Testament as uh, retrospection. People, modern authors, not modern in the sense of now, but modern in the sense of Second Temple literature, just writing back that Yahweh and El always were the same God. But this is interesting. Let's look at Joshua 22.22. 22. And the author here does a really good job of translating. The ESV does a terrible job of translating. The New King James is probably the better English translation of what's going on here. But it's El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. Two phrases that say the exact same things back to get back. And this author translates it as God of gods is Yahweh. El of the gods is Yahweh, equating Yahweh to El. Yahweh is El. And now the New King James, the Lord God of gods, the Lord God of gods. It doesn't flow as well as this ancient Near East scholar actually tells us about, that Yahweh is El. El of Elohim is Yahweh. God of gods is Yahweh. We know other anachronisms are used throughout the Bible, even in our common writing. We'll say something like, Columbus discovered America. Well, America was only named after Columbus discovered it, so referring to it as America before it's actually discovered is kind of anachronistic, right? And we see stuff like that in the Bible, and critics, people who don't understand how, writings work, how writing works at all, they'll say, oh, this is the Bible in air. We turn to Genesis 21, and it says here that Abraham, he departed, and he wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. But then we come across verse 31 and 32 in the same chapter. Wherefore, he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. And thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So it's named later in the chapter. But it says he departed and then went there, and then he names it later. It's anachronistic. It's The audience is familiar with the place. Audiences, that's that's their thought process. They understand what's going on when it says this guy traveled there. You don't have to, when you're writing history, use names only after they've been invented. Or you, you could anachronistically put in explanations, things that make sense for the audience, so the audience can follow along with your story. And that's what's going on here with Beersheba. That's what's going on with Yahweh, as used in Genesis. And Genesis probably wasn't written by Moses. We, we get a little bit of indication of that when it talks about Israel had not yet had the kings. Israel, I'll turn to that real quick. We see here in Genesis 36, 31, it says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So we, we get an author perspective here. This author is familiar with the kings. And remember, Moses never saw any kings. There was an entire period of the judges before you get to the period of the kings. So what are your options here? Either this is a later editor adding a little footnote going on here, or more likely, the entire book of Genesis was written in this time. The, the stories were codified and put together during the time of the kings. 
after the time of Moses. And you're not going to find any New Testament reference to Moses writing Genesis. People just assume that Moses wrote Genesis. They can't quote, they can't find any quote that links Moses to Genesis. It's usually like this multi-step process where they say, uh, the law equals Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Why? Because I think it in my head. Therefore, it is true that all those books must be the law. And uh, Genesis is definitely included in that distinction. Not just the actual laws that we have codified within Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. No, that's not just the law. The law extends to the narrative portions as well because my own head told me so. And then they'll say Genesis is included in that. And since Moses wrote the law, then he wrote Genesis. That's usually the thought process. It's not an accurate thought process. There's nothing that says in the Bible that Moses wrote Genesis. There's nothing. There's, there's wild speculation is what we got. And so Genesis probably wasn't written by Moses. It's probably written by one of these later authors using the name of Yahweh that they're very familiar with and putting these editorial footnotes in here. Like these are the kings who reigned over the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. And they, they use the estimations like Israel will be in captivity 400 years. Well, Israel was in captivity about 430 years. They were enslaved about 80 of those years. It's it's kind of kind of accurate, kind of, kind of the same. It's just a rough ballpark. But it's not a prediction of the future per se in, in Genesis when, when we see those numbers. Yeah, it could be. It could be estimations. It, it could be an accurate recounting of the past, but it didn't come to pass, right? Israel is never enslaved for 400 years. 430 years they were in Egypt and 80 years they were enslaved. And then they roamed the wilderness for an extra, what, 40 years, right? So, that, so that's the history of Israel. But back to our subject, back to Yahweh. Yahweh's name, Exodus 3. This is not this is not pure actuality. This is not pure simplicity. This is not the Norman Geisler proof text that he wants it to be. Let's go back to his book real quick if we still have it up and see what he does with this. This is, this is ugly. Ugly. So he starts with God's acity, which he, he pulls from Genesis 3.14. And from this, he makes all sorts of additional leaps of logic. He jumps from acity to pure simplicity to God's non-contingency to God's immutability, to God's impassibility, to God's non-temporality. And he just goes on. He goes on. And this is all from God's oneness, God's unity. God's not composed of parts. He takes all this, and this is all his wild speculation based off of Exodus 3.14. That's the only scripture he quotes. And he, he uses it like a dominoes effect. Because this is true, this also might be true. He has additional leaps of logic, all from this one proof text. This proof text, which contextually has nothing about all these concepts that he wants to pull in. And contextually, it violates what this, this text is actually about. God's relationality, how God operates, God's relationship to mankind, God's relationship with Israel, God's volition to be who he wants to be and not have things forced on him. That's what Yahweh, Esher Yahweh means. That's what I am means. And it's a name God came up with in response to Moses. So I hope you guys like this podcast. I, I like this podcast. I think it's very important, the name of God, Yahweh's name. I use Yahweh's name. I think it's an important name. And it's important in the history of God's dealing with mankind. Important to understand what it is, how it works, what it stands for, and what we're actually saying when we're using his name. Not like when the James Whites of the world use his name. That's cringeworthy. They, they, 
that's that's almost blasphemous when they use his name. They use it in a way that it violates the very essence of who Yahweh is. Almost a blasphemous usage of that name. So I like this type of stuff. I like these studies. I like knowing more about Yahweh, the God of the Bible. So if you have any questions, comments, send that to godisopenquestions at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.